Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. We are kicking off a new series today, and it's a little different than how we typically do our teaching series. Typically what we do is we group our conversations together in like three or four week series that are all grouped around the same topic or the same principle or the same idea. And uh, this is kind of a series that's grouped together, but rather than being like one principle that we tease out over the course of four weeks, what we're going to do with this series is we are going to look and group our conversations all around the same setting. Uh, Specifically, we're looking at the setting of the table. We're looking at the times in Jesus's life where he gathered together with friends or with family members or with people in the community around a meal. And uh, there's a couple reasons that we're doing this. One is I like food and uh, meals are a big deal. Some of you, you're like, we are too close to lunch for you to be talking about food all this time. Deal with it, okay? You'll get lunch after. Uh, But meals are a big deal, and not just a big deal to those of us who like to eat. Uh, Meals are a big deal throughout Scripture. If you actually open up the Bible and you start reading through it, uh, it starts out with this instruction or command from God to people to eat the things that are in the garden or the things that are in creation, to enjoy God's creation. Uh, It all goes wrong. The first conflict in the Bible is over a forbidden meal that's eaten, right? Right? The last act of Jesus before he's crucified, before his death, he gathers his followers together and he has a sacred meal with them that was packed full of meaning. And in fact, if you flip all the way to the end and you read the end of the story, the vision of what heaven and earth coming together looks like is all described through the lens of this big banquet feast where people from all over, all nations, all tribes, all walks of life gather together to worship Jesus together. So meals are a big deal. But not only are they a big deal uh, conceptually and theologically as you read through scripture, uh, but throughout Jesus' life, Jesus actually spent a disproportionate amount of time gathered around tables with other people. Uh, And when people set out to record an account of Jesus' life, whether it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, when they were recalling the events of Jesus' life, disproportionately, they seemed to write down and they seemed to remember moments where Jesus sat around a table, where Jesus had a meal with someone. In fact, Jesus spent so much time eating and drinking with people that he got this reputation as he walked this earth that he was a glutton and a drunkard, and he was hanging out with all of the wrong people, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, But I think the reason Jesus was gathered around tables so often is Jesus understood what many of us have probably experienced, that meals are opportunities. Meals are opportunities to connect. Like, like if you really slow down and, and maybe have a great meal with people that you love, isn't there like just something almost sacred about that? It, it's like time can slow down and you laugh all night long and you have this incredible time. It's an opportunity to connect and to open up and to invite people into our world or into our story and to understand one another. And I was just reminded of the power of this yesterday, actually, uh, because yesterday we had some friends over for what has become an annual tradition around this time of the year. We call it Spooky Feast. And what we do is we cook all kinds of spooky foods and bring them together and basically have like our little Halloween dinner together. But I'll show you what was on the menu. Uh, This first picture that you'll see is uh, from year one of Spooky Feast. So we had toxic waste mac and cheese, uh, rattlesnake breadsticks, but the real star of the show in year one were smoked bat wings, which are chicken wings with a lot of food coloring on them. My friend, they were delicious, but they will not eat them anymore because they also looked rancid. But that's kind of the point. Uh, we 
spread out the menu this year. This is from yesterday. We had feet loaf and uh, shrunken head potatoes and Eden, my daughter, helped make the little apple monsters. And of course, we had eyeball antipasto. But uh, the food is fun. Okay, and it's a lot of work, right? We think up the menu and we cook it all and we bring it all together. The food's fun, but it's really a, a setting for the actual magic that happens, which is the conversation and the laughs and the catching up that happens. I had friends around the table uh, who I hadn't seen for a little while, and I, I was just reminded of the power of gathering together as we were sharing stories of what we've been up to lately. And, and in fact, one group of friends uh, had their firstborn son this year, and so he was at the table, and then he was on the floor because he's still little, but he was just like cruising around, and it was just like this incredible thing where I'm like, we get to be a part of one another's lives. Uh, we got down some of Eden's old baby toys and he was playing with them. And like I said, it was just this snapshot where I was like, man, it's powerful to gather together. It's powerful to take time to catch up and to connect and to sit around the table. And hopefully you've experienced something like that as well. But another reason it's a great time of the year for us to focus on this particular setting is because we're heading into the holidays, right? And what are the holidays typically uh, accompanied by? meals, feasts, festivals, right? Gathering together with friends and family, going to different functions. And what we experience, this little sliver of the year, more than any other time of the year, is like the full human experience of gathering together around a table. Right? All of the joy and laughter that will be a part of your holiday celebrations hopefully will be there. Sometimes there's sadness and loss that shows up at the table. Occasionally it gets awkward, okay? Depending on your family, there might be conflict that shows up along the way. But it's like the table is this setting where our full humanity can show up for better and for worse. And I think for many of us, uh, there's kind of a stereotypical idea in our minds of what the table is supposed to look like. Uh, if you've ever seen this painting, it's an old Norman Rockwell painting of uh, what a Thanksgiving dinner is supposed to look like. And I don't know about you, but my Thanksgiving dinner has never looked like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, number one, that turkey is gigantic and perfectly prepared. Uh, mine's normally a little more Christmas vacation-y when you cut into it, but uh, this, if we look at it, like it looks wholesome, it looks inviting, it looks exciting, and yet it doesn't really reflect reality for many of us. Like for one, there's no smartphones on the table. Right? That's how you know that it's just a painting. Uh, look at like the smiling faces and the eye contact and like the obvious connection that they're all having with one another. I was thinking about this picture and then I was thinking about what my table typically looks like on just a typical evening for dinner. And uh, <laughs> it's not this because we've got a five-year-old sitting at the table who may or may not like what's in front of her, uh, even if it's what she asked for, <laughs> you know how that drill goes. Uh, and then we have a one-year-old puppy who, who's a Bernadoodle, and that means that she's like 60 pounds, but her head is right at table height. So most evenings, it's a combination of eating as fast as we can, uh, between my wife and I, so that we can like wrangle the little one and try and get her to eat and like eat the food we told you you wanted, it's gonna be good. Like, there's that tension. And then my primary job is to wrangle the dog because she has learned that Eden, my daughter, is like the best strategy to get food. So she rams her Bernadoodle head like right into Eden's shoulder the entire meal until Eden drops something or gives her something. And so most of my dinners, rather than this like wholesome eye contact experience, is me going, Penny, knock it off, Penny, sit down. Like I sound like a drill sergeant every night for dinner. Uh, there may have been a few times I put the dog's head on the floor and put my foot on its neck, but I'll let you decide if I'm exaggerating or not. Uh, the table doesn't always look like we think it's going to look, does it? And, and while the ideal of the table is a beautiful thing, and we're going to talk about that some more, the reality of our tables and the reality of our gatherings is sometimes they're a bit awkward. Sometimes they're not quite on target. And, and I want to bring a little more awkwardness uh, to the table today to guide us in our conversation. I actually want to ask you a question, and it's probably going to be a little tension-filled if you actually engage in it, but I want to ask you, who's invited to your table? 
Maybe not like your literal table for dinner, but like who's invited into your life? Or or maybe the more tension-filled way to ask this question is who's not invited to your table? Because while we all want to be and want to appear as like wholesome, inviting, welcoming people, the truth is, even though the nature of the question's awkward, there are certain people for all of us that we think, no, I don't think I want any more time with them, right? Like, no, I I don't think I want to actually invite them in. There's certain people for all of us that it feels difficult for us to imagine actually having them join us at our table, whether that's for a drink or for coffee or or to have a meal together. Uh, There are certain types of people that we would just rather not have more of, if we're honest. And there's really obvious natural reasons for some of this, so I'll play Captain Obvious for just a second. Because uh, one reason that there are people that it's just harder for us to get along with and difficult for us to imagine wanting to invite in is because we don't all see the world the same, right? Like uh, those people who differ from us and who have strong opinions maybe that differ from us, I- it's challenging to imagine wanting some more of that. Like that, that Facebook parent who gives you all the free advice, you're like, yeah, I don't think I want that at my table, right? Or, or the, the person from that political party, whether it's that one or that one, you're like, whoever they are for you, it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I need more of that. I don't think I want to have that conversation in my home. Even if it's just people who have different preferences, they like different things than you like, and it's hard for you to connect because of that. We all have people, right, that, that it's difficult for us to imagine inviting in. And again, this isn't necessarily holistically a bad thing. It's certainly not an evil thing. It's just a symptom of the reality that we like to be with people who are like us. All of us like to be with people who are like us. It's just easier. It's like you have a common language or a common value system or a common opportunity. And again, this isn't evil. It's just easier. And in fact, it can be a good thing in our lives. Like we all need people that we can let our guard down around. People that we don't feel like we have to impress or people that we don't have to like work at it. Those relationships that at times at least can feel effortless to connect with. Those are good things. We all need people like that. But here's The problem for us, if we want to follow Jesus, not just with our minds, right, not just believe in Jesus, but actually live life the way Jesus modeled for us, what we're going to see today is that Jesus' life, Jesus' approach to the table challenges us, that just gathering with people who are like us isn't enough. It's a good thing, okay? It's a good thing to have, but it's not the finish line. If we actually want to follow Jesus in the places that Jesus went, it's going to get less comfortable for us along the way, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal for us here at Story because it hints at this topic uh, that we've said is an important part of our future together. If you remember uh, in the spring, we launched this initiative that we called I'm In. It's a two-year spiritual journey we're on together. And uh, we have some like tangible projects like working on a new building that's a part of it. But it's really meant to be a spiritual journey and a focus for us over these next few years. And one of the things we said we were going to focus on was this word, hospitality. And we did a series all about it at the start of the year. Uh, When we talked about hospitality, we said hospitality is more than just charcuterie boards or veggie trays. Uh, It's kind of what we naturally think of as like prepping for people to come over. Hospitality is more than just the countdown until you can get into your sweatpants. We call them quitters in my house because it's like when you're ready to quit, that's where you go, right? But but hospitality is more than that. Uh, For Jesus, in Jesus's world, and ultimately for us, Hospitality wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't just a nice thing to do. Hospitality was a command given to God's people. And and in fact, I'm going to show you something, uh, and it's going to look a little odd to you. It's written kind of like it's scripture, but I did not get confused about what books are in or not in the Bible. Uh, This is a piece of text from what is known as the rabbinic tradition or the tradition of the rabbis. So this is the teaching that would have been popular at the time that Jesus walked this earth. 
Essentially, uh, there's scripture, there's like the Old Testament, which is how God spoke through prophets and some of the history accounts. And then the rabbinic tradition is what rabbis said about all of that scripture. That, that basically rabbis would teach and would talk and would wrestle with the text. And eventually somebody, just like happened with the New Testament and p- pieces of our Bible, eventually somebody wrote down some of the things these rabbis said and they bound them and they put them in a book. So this is known as the rabbinic tradition. But in this instruction that Jesus would have known, when he walked this earth, that God's people would have been called to follow when they walked this earth. It says this, and I kept it in the like thy thou language just to make it feel older and sacred, I guess. Uh, here's what it says. It says, let thy house be wide open and let the poor be members of thy household. Let thy house be wide open. Some of you are like, uh-uh, I just bought a security system, right? Like uh, it, it feels countercultural to the way that we approach our homes and the way that we approach our lives, but it's this instruction for God's people. Let thy house be wide open. And for God's people, again, this is a command, but it's also a reminder to them. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've talked about how uh, God's people went through this season where they, for a while, were slaves in Egypt. And then God pulled them out of slavery and sent them into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years before arriving in the place that God wanted for them and ultimately started to become a nation. Uh, And so what that means is that God's people knew what it was like to be wanderers. They knew what it was like to be foreigners. They knew what it was like to not feel welcomed in. And so this command was meant to be a reminder God's essentially saying, hey, keep your homes open to welcome in the stranger, to welcome in the wanderer, because you were once wanderers in Egypt, and you were once lost in the wilderness. So this wisdom was a reminder for them to remember the people who may be in the same shoes they were once in. And from the very beginning, what we see is that God's people were meant to be marked by an openness to others. And and as we're having our table talk today, I want to take it a little further and show you how radically Jesus practiced this idea of hospitality when he walked this earth. And uh, I'll kind of give you the punchline early. If we look at Jesus's life and the way that he approached the table or the way that he approached inviting people in, Jesus shared a table with insiders and outsiders. That that Jesus uh, gathered with people who would be considered insiders, like the religious elite or the people that you would maybe expect a rabbi or a teacher to interact with. Jesus interacted with some of those leaders. Uh, In fact, there's an account of a specific Pharisee, which the Pharisees get kind of a bad rap, but they were the religious leaders of their day when Jesus walked this earth. Uh, There's a specific Pharisee named Nicodemus that Jesus hung out with. Jesus had a meal with Nicodemus. In fact, uh, the verse John 3:16 that football players put in their eye black and that we've heard before that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that was spoken by Jesus to Nicodemus around a table as they were having a conversation. So often we see Jesus kind of having conflict with Pharisees, but he also invited them in. He had conversations with them. He had meals with them and welcomed them. But more notoriously and more scandalously, Jesus also spent time with those outside of the faith community. Jesus spent a disproportionate amount of time with people that the religious elite of the day would have said he wasn't supposed to be spending time with. And in fact, one of the most beautiful examples of this happens when Jesus calls some of his first followers, and specifically when he calls his follower Matthew. And if you don't know Matthew's story, uh, Matthew actually wrote the oldest account of Jesus' life. So we know it as the Gospel of Matthew, but he was the first one uh, to share the story and then eventually write it down and document it in a letter. And uh, as he recorded this account, when he gets to chapter 9, so we know it as Matthew 9, when he gets there, uh, Matthew talks about his origin story in the whole thing. He talks about the moment where Jesus approaches him and invites him to follow. And here's what it says. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew 
sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. There's a powerful thing happening here in the language that Matthew chose to use there that if we just read it, we kind of gloss over it and we miss it. But did you see how Matthew described himself? He says, Jesus went up and saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. You know what Matthew didn't say? He didn't say Jesus saw a tax collector. And that's an important but subtle difference because tax collectors in the ancient world, uh, in this particular context, they were looked down upon by God's people. They were considered traitors because essentially tax collectors had sided with Rome and were oppressing God's people by levying taxes against them and a lot of the time skimming a little off the top for themselves as well. So if you think we have it bad with taxes, it wasn't great then either. Uh, So tax collectors were viewed as traitors to the people of God. But Jesus sees not a tax collector. Jesus sees Matthew, a man at a tax collector's booth. You see how subtle but how significant that difference is? The point is that Matthew was not where he was supposed to be. Matthew was not doing what God would have wanted him to do. But when Jesus saw him, Jesus saw the dignity and the personhood in Matthew, even in the midst of a broken situation. And what I want you to know today is the same thing is true for you too. Whatever mess you may find yourself in, whatever you may find yourself today, Jesus looks at you and he doesn't see the mess first. Okay, Jesus calls you by name. Jesus sees your personhood, your dignity and your worth, and he affirms it as he meets you. So Jesus sees Matthew, the man sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he offers this powerful two-word invitation. He says, follow me. And uh, this isn't just like, hey, let's hang out for the afternoon. When a rabbi like Jesus would have said, follow me to a person like Matthew, he was saying, hey, will you actually follow my way of teaching? Will you essentially become my disciple or my apprentice? Will you learn to live the way that I live and learn the way that I view the world? Will you basically give your life to follow me? And it wasn't, again, this obligation so much as it was an invitation full of dignity and full of worth. So Matthew, the man at the tax collector's booth, right? A guy who felt like he was on the wrong side of God because he was siding with Rome against God's people. Jesus approaches him and says, will you follow me? And when he gets an invitation like that, Matthew gets up and says, absolutely. And they start to move together. And so what happens next is Jesus tells Matthew, hey, before you can do anything significant, you're gonna have to read through the whole Bible, memorize it, okay? And then you're gonna have to go through my five-week discipleship course where I make sure you get everything right, like you gotta have solid theology before you can ever be used by God in a powerful way. Not at all, okay? That's how we tend to think. That's kind of the religious mindset. It's like, oh, I've got to get it all together and then God's going to use me. But the text immediately goes on and what happens is Jesus ends up at Matthew's dinner table. So Jesus offers his invitation and says, follow me. Matthew gets up and then it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So I love, right, the the scene immediately shifts and Jesus is surrounded at the table with all the wrong sorts of people. Like that's how bad tax collectors were viewed. They were a unique category of sinners. It was tax collectors and sinners all sitting at the table around Jesus. And I can imagine they were having good food and good conversation and laughing and connecting and get to know one another. And then it's like the Pharisees pass by, the religious leaders, maybe they looked through the window and they saw who was there and they went, "Uh uh-uh. Right? That, that, that's not how that's supposed to go. And so they pull one of Jesus' followers over and they're like, hey, why does your teacher eat with those kinds of people? Right? What is he doing surrounded 
by outsiders? What is he doing at the table with people who shouldn't be there? And and it was a loaded question because in Jesus' day, there was this concept in the religious world known as table fellowship. It it honestly kind of shows up in our world sometimes today too. But the concept of table fellowship essentially meant that whoever you welcomed to your table, whoever you broke bread with, whoever you, you spent time around the table with, you were approving of. You were accepting You were essentially saying, if you sit at my table, if we break bread together, if we have a meal together, it means we are in right relationship with one another. And the Pharisees see Jesus at the table with people who didn't belong there. And they go, "Uh uh-uh, that's not right. Right? They're not in right relationship. But Jesus did it anyway. Jesus sat with people he was supposed to disapprove of and instead functionally said, hey, I approve of you right from the start. I approve of who you are right from the start. And and so the Pharisees see it and they complain and they say like, what is your teacher doing? And then sarcastic Jesus shows up, or I I like to imagine it that way at least. I I can imagine Jesus is sitting at the table and maybe he looks out the window and he sees the Pharisees talking and maybe hears their question. And it says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. So offensive. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is sitting at a table surrounded by all the wrong people. And he goes, no, 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 no. I'm not here to build a holy huddle. Okay, I I don't just want people who already agree with me to hang out and we can sit around and talk about how right we are. Instead, I want to invite the people on the wrong side of me to join me. I, I want to invite them in, even if they're supposed to be left outside. And then when Jesus says to these religious leaders, go learn what this means, It's such an offensive thing because remember, they are the religious leaders. Like they know the scriptures. They teach the scriptures day in and day out. But Jesus quotes scripture back to them and says, learn what this means. And what Jesus is doing, uh, it's called a remez in Hebrew, but it's this idea basically where you leave a breadcrumb to a past section of scripture to link it together. Uh, The best nerdy way that I was thinking about describing it, uh, a couple of months ago, there was a new Star Wars show that came out called Ahsoka and I watched it and it was really good but it was basically considered like season five of a earlier Star Wars show that was called Rebels which is one of the animated ones but I'm a big man child so just deal with it I watched that too it was really good and then when Ahsoka came out they had these little breadcrumb moments where if you had watched Rebels you understood what was happening in the scene my wife had not watched Rebels and so she's a trooper and was watching it with us but it was just like who, who are these people? What's happening? And I'm sitting there like, oh man, that's from season two and da, 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 like all the nerdy stuff. That's kind of what Jesus is doing with scripture. Okay, he's like doing this callback, this breadcrumb back to an earlier text in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's actually referencing something that was spoken by the prophet Hosea. And here's what Hosea said. I want to give it to you in context so you can see exactly what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders. Hosea said to uh, God's people at a time where once again they were getting it wrong. Uh, Hosea offers this on behalf of God. He says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. And then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So in other words, at the time, God was saying to his people, listen, you're going through all the religious motions, right? You're doing all the right stuff. You're burning your offerings. You're showing up at the temple. But I want more than that, right? I want your love to be more than just this thing that shows up when it's the right time to go do the thing for me. I want your heart. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? I desire that you would acknowledge me, 
not just offer an offering to me. And, and so Jesus is looking at these religious leaders and he's saying, hey, learn what this means, right? God wants our hearts, not just the right religious activity. God doesn't just want us to be on the right side of things and have our in-group and talk about how right we are. God wants our open heart. Or, or maybe a way to say it, the challenge and the choice that's in front of us as it relates to our own lives and our own tables is this, that we can choose to either be door holders or gatekeepers. We can choose what our posture is, particularly towards those people that we would think are outside of the faith or outside of our community. We can either be door holders to them or gatekeepers towards them. And a gatekeeper it is just like what the Pharisees were doing. Right? The gatekeeper is concerned about making sure all of the wrong people stay out and they don't get in and mess up all the good things that are happening inside. Gatekeepers make sure that the wrong people stay away. But a door holder, a door holder is somebody who has been inside and somebody who has experienced the power of God's love for them. And, and so they go back to the front door and they hold it open and they say, everybody's got to experience this, right? Everybody needs to check this out. Everybody belongs in here. And, and this language of a uh, doorkeeper, uh, I grabbed it from something David says uh, in the Psalms. It's a prayer that he writes. It's kind of a famous one. You may have heard it before. People have made it into worship songs. Uh, but it's recorded in Psalm 84 where David says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And again, he's not really talking about what we're talking about today, but that imagery of being a doorkeeper in the house of the kingdom of God, right? It's such a powerful invitation for our lives. It's the calling for who we're supposed to be if we're actually following Jesus. Rather than being gatekeepers who make sure all of the wrong people stay away, we're called to be door holders, people who hold the door open and say, hey, come see Jesus, come meet Jesus, come check out Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who can actually change a person from the inside out. And here's the crazy dynamic of how Jesus lived and who he interacted with and what it was like around the table with Jesus. It's that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. He's sitting at a table, once again, with all of the wrong crowd, and they're having a great time. Like they actually connect and get along with one another. And in case you don't believe me yet, uh, I'm gonna just rapid fire give you an overview of the types of people that Jesus called to be his disciples. Jesus had this group of 12 disciples. They were like his inner circle, the guys he was gonna build the movement on and build the movement with. And uh, Matthew records the moment where Jesus calls them out in Matthew chapter 10. He says, these are the names of the 12 apostles, which this is the section we tend to just kind of read through and it's like, okay, last names, and then we move on with the story. But there's some context in here that is so extraordinary for us to understand. He says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, here he is, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, so a different Simon, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, which I also love. The New Testament authors, every time they write about Judas, they put a little dig in there. They're like, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus, by the way. But anyway, we lose this in our context, but that list of people, there is no other environment in the first century where that group of people would have gathered together. Th there is no other context in which that group of people would be able to get along with one another. Because if you run through it, uh, at the time, the moment in history where Jesus lived, there was a big question that God's people were wrestling with. It's not unlike how many of us are wrestling today. The question was, how do we remain faithful to God in a changing world and in a changing culture? 
In their day, it was the influence of the Greeks and the Romans, the Hellenistic way of thinking that was changing the world around them rapidly, and they were trying to be faithful to God. And and so the way that God's people engaged with culture differed across a few different perspectives. Uh, We've talked about Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group that essentially said, hey, to stay pure and to stay connected to God, we have to follow the law. In fact, we have to follow the law so well, we may even add to the law a little bit just to make sure that we're extra keeping the law. And there were likely Pharisees who followed Jesus. It's likely that Peter and potentially James and potentially John were in this camp where they believe the number one thing we've got to do is keep and follow God's law. Then there were others uh, who would have found themselves in a camp known as the Essenes, And these are basically the doomsday preppers of the first century. They were like, hey, the world's crazy. Everything's going wrong. We don't know where God's at. So we're going to go to the wilderness and we're just going to read scripture and maybe even write a little scripture. We're just going to meditate. We're going to stay out there. It's not about the law. It's about getting away from this corrupt world and staying pure out here. Uh, John the Baptist would have been considered an Essene. The hairy wild man who like wore animal clothes and ate locusts. That was an Essene. And it's likely that Andrew and Philip were Essenes because they followed John the Baptist before they followed Jesus. So you've got a couple of Jesus' followers who are like, it's all about keeping the law. Then you had this other group that's like, no, no, let's go to the wilderness. Let's get away from all this evil stuff. We already know we had Matthew the tax collector, right? He would be considered a Herodian because he worked with King Herod. He worked with the government of their day. And basically he said, hey, we can have it both ways, right? We can be faithful to God and we can leverage the influence of culture. We can leverage the power politically so that we can have more influence. And so he became a Herodian or a person who mixed cultures. Then there were other guys. They mentioned Simon the Zealot. That's not just like a cool nickname. That's another perspective on how God's people should have behaved. And the Zealots, they would have been like the terrorists or the insurgency of their day. Their perspective was, "Uh uh-uh, it's not about the law. It's not about the wilderness. We're not going to work with Rome we're going to take Rome out and we're going to do it one person at a time. And and so Simon the zealot was following Jesus. Judas Iscariot was likely a zealot because uh, Iscariot became known as a term for a weapon that zealots used. It was like this little dagger. And and so the zealots would actually hide a dagger inside of their robes. And when they saw Romans walking by, particularly Roman officials, sometimes they would just straight up like go Assassin's Creed on them and take them out. Like they, they just were this violent, like, we're going to take over the Roman government perspective. And they found themselves following Jesus. So think about that, right? We've got all of these different perspectives represented in just these 12 guys. And then what Jesus does is Jesus goes, okay, guys, follow me. They're like, okay, let's do it. And he goes, and now I'm going to send you out two by two. Like, we're going to pair up. And again, we read that, we're like, cool, buddy system. It's a great idea. But can you imagine what it was like for those pairs to have been made? Like, how did he pair them up? Was it the Pharisee who's like, it's all about the law, and the Essene who's like, let's go to the wilderness? Like, what was their conversation like? Did he pair Matthew the tax collector up with Simon the zealot, the guy who's working with Rome, with the guy who's like, we got to take out Rome? Uh, Like, can you imagine how awkward that was? Can you imagine what snack break was like? And just like, so what have you been up to, Simon? Got a knife. Like, (laughs) it's like, ah, like there's so much tension and so much challenge baked into it. And yet, do you think it's possible Jesus knew exactly what he was doing? Do you think it's possible that there's actually power in our differences coming together? That that maybe Jesus knew everybody was invited? And and like, can you imagine just the powerful perspective we have now that these 12 men of different backgrounds suddenly became unified around one Jesus and became leaders in his movement? 
Here's the point for us today. It's that people who are nothing like Jesus like Jesus, and if we're following him, then people who are nothing like us should like us as well. And I'm not talking about like pandering or like please just like me or anything like that. I'm saying it, it's on the way that we treat one another. A challenging question may be, do you have friends who are different than you? Do you have people in your inner circle, like Jesus did, his 12? Do you have people who voted differently than you? And yet you can still like lock eyes and have meaningful conversations and appreciate one another. Do you have people in your circle who believe differently than you about certain things, who value things differently than you? If you don't, Jesus would say we've got room to grow, right? Jesus would say we need to widen the circle. We need to welcome in some outsiders. And if that's you today, real quickly, I just want to give you two simple things that we can do to help open up the circle, to help invite more people to the table. And the first thing that we can do is to take a posture of curiosity, to actually be curious about the people around us. So often, we lean towards judgment, don't we? Like our knee-jerk reaction, when we see them especially, whoever they are for you, we think there they are, right? And they're so like that, and we get all fired up. What if instead of leading with judgment, we practice curiosity? I told you I have a five-year-old at my dinner table. You know what she asks me almost every day, almost all day? Why? Right, why? Why do we do things like that? Why does it work that way? Why is it called that? How do I spell it? Like, it's just why, why, why all the time? And admittedly, it can be a little annoying because eventually I reach that point where I'm like, I don't know, I'm your dad. <laughs> like, just do what I say. But the curiosity is the way that she's figuring out her world, right? She's asking these questions to be like, man, what is going on around here? How does this place work? At some point, we grow out of that. But I think maybe we ought not to, right? What if the people that you struggle with the most, instead of just judging them from a distance, you became willing to get curious. You became willing to ask more questions to actually hear their story, to, to maybe try and understand how somebody like that could think or live the way that they do. I think there'd be extraordinary power in it. I was thinking about kind of the unique window I get to this dynamic between judgment and curiosity as a pastor, uh, because sometimes people call me when the bottom drops out in life, right? Especially like if it's been their own decision-making that causes it. Sometimes they still call me like, hey, I'm in a mess. I need to talk to somebody. I want to figure it out. And uh, I don't know if I'm mean or if this is strategic, but I office here at the theater, so there's not like a ton of private meeting space. I mean, if necessary, I can do that, so don't think I'm just airing your dirty laundry to everyone. But more often than not, what I do is I'm like, hey, let's meet at the coffee shop. So we go down to Aroma, and I'm sitting there, and I've had so many conversations, even in the past year, where I'm sitting with somebody, and they're like, hey, here's what's going on, and they're spilling their story, and I'm like, oh, you did make a mess. <laughs> oh, that's what's happening. And what I can feel is we're in this public place, right? A and there's regulars who are there and, and they're sitting around and almost every time I have this moment where I'm like, what are they thinking about what they're hearing? Uh, often I feel like I'm being watched. Like how does a pastor respond when they hear a story like that? And every time I try to be very deliberate, even if on the inside I'm going like, you did what? And I didn't even know you could break the law in that way. And like whatever it may be, like I, I try and instead of going, ah, I lean in and I'm like, really? <laughs> Tell me more, right? How'd that go for you? What happened next? A and I just like, I've tried and practice curiosity. A and in so doing, what I'm trying to do is practice the heart of Jesus that is open to people who maybe are on the outside. Which, by the way, Jesus, throughout the New Testament, he asked 500 questions and he directly answered about 29. So what that tells us is Jesus was maybe more curious than he was judgmental. And what if we were more question people 
than answer people here at Story Church. I think we need to be curious. And the second thing we can do is we need to be kind. And I know that feels like elementary school, but I think a lot of us need to go back to it. We need to be kind to one another. And when I say kind, I don't mean like Christian nice that's like, bless your heart and like moves on. I mean the kind of kindness that allows people to be where they are, right? That, that, that has compassion, that has empathy. Andy Stanley, a pastor we listen to and learn from often, uh, he one time defined kindness as loaning somebody your strength instead of pointing out their weakness. Man, there's a lot of us making a recreational activity or a hobby out of pointing out other people's weaknesses. What if we became the people who loaned our strength to them instead? We became the people who are kind, even in the midst of brokenness. So the point is probably for all of us. Jesus would be challenging us today to open up another seat at the table, to welcome in some outsiders, to welcome in some people that maybe we think don't belong. And just to drive it home, um, I want to end just kind of with an exercise together. I'm going to share with you a meme that I've seen on the internet, but it's not a funny one. Uh, it's really more of a challenging one. And I first saw this around 2020 when everything was nice and stable. Uh, not really. When everything was kind of blowing up, I saw this going around. And then there have been different versions of this made in every year since because there continue being like tribes that we break into and ways that we can fight with one another happening. Uh, but it was this meme that showed an image of Jesus washing the feet of different groups of people. And I'll be honest, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, cool. And then I swiped on and I kept looking for something funny, right? But as I was thinking about this topic, I thought maybe sitting with some of these images for a second could be the perfect way that we let God work on our hearts as far as whoever they are for you. So I'm gonna share a couple of these images with you and just pay attention to what happens in your heart. Okay, pay attention to your knee-jerk reaction when you see all of this because hopefully we're all offended by the end of this. Check out the first one. Jesus washing the feet of an addict, whether it's alcohol or drugs. Maybe it's somebody you think got into this mess themselves. Somebody who's caused real pain in your life, certainly caused pain towards himself. Jesus sees them and he welcomes them and he serves them and he loves them. I'll show the next one. Getting more tension filled, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus washing the feet of someone holding a pride flag. Someone that, that maybe we think is on the outside, somebody that we think God could never welcome in or never accept. Jesus sees them. Jesus loves them. Jesus serves them. Jesus welcomes them. We'll keep going. A convict of some sort. Somebody who broke the law at some point along the way. Maybe somebody who caused real pain for you and for your family because of the choices that they've made. Somebody who's maybe rightfully behind bars. Jesus sees them, and Jesus serves them, and Jesus loves them. We can jump to the other side of the equation. Law enforcement officer. Again, this came out around 2020, right? Was there any tension around policing in our country in 2020? Any opinions surrounding that, right? Whatever you think of law enforcement, Jesus sees them. Jesus honors them. Jesus loves them. Jesus serves them. Go to the next one. Yeah, every time I heard it, there's like a little snicker, right? But I'm serious. President, former President Trump, a guy who has been a little polarizing <laughs> for some of us, for a lot of us. Jesus sees him. Jesus loves him. Jesus serves him. 
Jesus welcomes him in. And in case you're cool with that one, current President Joe Biden, same thing. Jesus sees him. Jesus loves him. Jesus serves him and he welcomes him in. You feel that in the room? <laughs> like somewhere along the way, all of us are like, nah, uh Like <laughs> somewhere along the way, all of us are like, mm. that's the radical openness of Jesus. And I know I'm leaving you with a mess right now. Maybe that's the point. Right? Maybe that's the point. Maybe we're called not to be gatekeepers to the kingdom of God, but door holders who welcome people in to experience the Jesus who can actually change people's hearts and actually change people's lives. But let me pray for you as we wrap up. God, I know this is tension-filled for all of us, me included. And God, I just pray that you would give us wisdom to know what to do with the tension. God, I pray that, that here at Story Church, we would be genuinely marked by your radical hospitality that caused people to look at you and say, what's he doing with those people? God, may we be so open to others that we learn to be curious. We learn to actually hear their stories and learn to have empathy and compassion, even if we differ and even if we disagree. God, help us to be kind. It seems like it should be our starting point, but God, many of us have lost it. Help us to be kind to one another, to loan other people our strength instead of just pointing out others' weaknesses. And God, ultimately, may we be a reflection of your heart towards all people. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know with what we've heard and the courage to actually follow through with it. And we pray and ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.